0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, everybody. uh, If you sit in meditation for a few minutes, you are likely to experience some degree of pain, either physical or psychological. If you hang around in the meditation scene for very long, you are very likely to hear this expression. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. And that's what this episode is all about, boosting your pain tolerance through meditation because pain really is inevitable. But can you reduce your suffering through mindfulness and also compassion? Dr. Christiana Wolf argues, yes, she is a physician turned mindfulness and compassion teacher and also teacher trainer. She is an authorized Buddhist teacher in the insight or Vipassana meditation tradition, teaching classes and retreats around the world. She's also the author of a book called Outsmart Your Pain. In this conversation, we talk about meditation techniques that will help you have a better relationship to your pain, separating your pain from the stressful thoughts that often come with it, rewriting the stories we tell ourselves about our pain, strengthening our inner and outer support systems, and seeing our experience of pain as an opportunity. I should say this episode originally aired back in July of 2021. It became very popular, so we're reposting it this week and pairing it with Monday's episode on a kind of psychological pain having to do with the long-standing and unhelpful mental habits. If you missed that episode, go check it out. It's with Dr. Radley Weininger and she talks about what she calls longstanding recurring painful patterns or LERPs. In any event, you don't have to listen to that episode to get a lot out of this one. So we'll get started with Dr. Christiana Wolf right after this. Whole Wheat, Pita Pockets, and more. I am constantly consuming these 365 products, including the the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, We love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. I always love it when uh, the people behind a product that my family already uses tell us that they want to be sponsors of this show. Today, it's Tidy Cats. As you may know, we have uh, an unreasonable amount of cats, four of them. So we use a lot of kitty litter, and Tidy Cats is great. Uh, They have a product called Tidy Care Alert, which uses color changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help you put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. Whether you have one or four cats, they make it easy to keep track. Plus, it's low dust and lightweight with long lasting ammonia control. From the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. I'm not a vet, but I do love cats. Tidy cats, check them out. Dr. Christiana Wolf, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I met you, I think at the tail end of my first meditation retreat at Spirit Rock. That is Rock.
1: correct, that is correct, Yeah
0: summer of 2010 and it was a 10-day meditation retreat it had been a huge roller coaster for me I had hated it and then loved it and then hated it again but it was nice to talk to you at the end of it because I thought everybody here is just a crazy person there this is all a bunch of weirdos and then I sat sat next to this really nice doctor who sounded like so normal
1: <laughs> thank you Yeah, that was nice to meet you there. And I remember that you were all excited about that retreat and you had already, like, thoughts about, like, writing about it.
0: A couple of summers later, when Joseph went back to teach the retreat again, he sent me a snarky email that said, I'm here at the place of your great awakening. I'm surprised they haven't put up a plaque. So congratulations on your new book. Thank you. Let's just start with the title, Outsmarting Pain. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking that. In a way... Like you could say, like, we don't really want to outsmart the pain, but what we want to do is we want to see how our mind influences the way that we experience pain. And so the book is focused on chronic physical pain, but I mean, pretty much everything in the book is also about emotional pain, right? Because it's like how the mind tries to make sense of what is happening in our experience and how we relate to that and how we can reduce the suffering.
0: Would it be safe to say that the book, while on some level targeted at folks with chronic pain, is not only about chronic pain, but also about emotional pain that you reference, which is universal? Let's start with physical pain. How can meditation help us have a better relationship? What are some of the techniques we can use to have a more skillful relationship to pain?
1: So one of the core ideas around this book is to become aware that what we're experiencing is usually made out of three components. So like a physical component, like the sensations that we're experiencing, then the emotional component, right? Emotions that also, of course, like show up in the body. And then we have how we think about it or like the meaning about that, right? So we're usually not aware that these are three components, but we experience it as one thing and then we can label it, that is the pain. At any given moment, this is actually a fantastic exercise to go like, so out of these three, what is creating the biggest suffering right now? Because for example, people who have chronic pain and they have a flare up, let's say, right? So you have chronic lower back pain, you wake up in the morning and you go like, oh, there it is. So there is the physical component of that, but it is just a reminder of something, if it's chronic, that happened before. So what the mind does, it goes into like, oh, last time this happened, I lost three days of work. I had to take the medication and I had side effects of the medication, right? So there's the story. And then what am I feeling about that? This makes me anxious. This makes me feel overwhelmed. And then I'm thinking also about the future. Will I again lose work? Will I lose my job? What does that mean for me, like down the line? And so what I'm not noticing in that moment, the actual physical pain might not be so bad, right? And so when we go into that and kind of break it apart and then learn skills to say like, oh, this is how I can work with the emotional component. This is how I can work with the cognitive or mental, like the thoughts, the story in that moment, or if it should really be true that the physical sensations are what is core center, there are also practices with that. So I can start to break this big box or this big concept apart that from the outside feels overwhelming and I don't want to touch. And that can really make a big difference because it makes you really feel more able to deal with that.
0: That's true of so much of meditation. You're sort of disambiguating, you're untangling the strands of whatever's happening in your mind. And once you take it apart, it doesn't seem so solid. It doesn't seem so unworkable.
1: Exactly. And then the more you do that, of course, it's a practice to say like, oh, right, here we go again, right? And then you build confidence on that you can actually be with pain in a different way.
0: So let's talk about how we would build the skill that would give you the confidence, the skill of being able to break the pain apart into the three components. How do we do that?
1: So always, 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 always is the first aspect is awareness, right? So usually we're on autopilot. We're not aware. We're suffering. We're struggling. We try to avoid it because it's unpleasant. We don't want to look at it. So most important moment always is the moment where you snap out of autopilot and go like, okay, this is what's happening right now. Okay, there's pain here right now. And you can already see that when I say there's pain here right now, I'm not saying I'm in pain because that goes back to the do I identify, right, as the person who has pain and the ramifications that come with that. So in that moment, when I say, okay, there's pain here, what I can do is I can say like, okay, so let me just check in and see out of these three, what am I struggling with right now? So if I had a pie chart, (laughs) what would be the biggest piece here? And then I can really, depending on which the biggest piece is, work with them separately and let the other two just be a little bit more in the background.
0: So if the biggest piece is actually the physicality of the pain, what Mm -hmm. do you mean by work with it?
1: Yeah. So if it is really that there is just really acute pain right now, that is really intense, you have two options. You can either become very specific about it, can kind of call it zooming in, or you can zoom out. So zooming in would be that you say like, okay, so where exactly is that pain located right now? Because often we don't even check into that area with a lot of specificity. Like so we can say like, okay, there is like this pressure that is like a little bit above my sacrum, and it's a little bit more to the right, and it feels in this moment more hot and it maybe has the size of the quarter coin. So that's very specific. And what you bring to it, you bring curiosity to it. And we know that like one of the core mechanisms of how mindfulness can really shift or change things is curiosity. Can we be curious instead of already assume that we know what we'll find, right? And then we can go in and then we can notice, is it there the entire time? And I really want to make sure that we're getting away from judging labels. So often people will say like, oh, that pain is killing me. Or it's like that monster in my back. That is not a neutral observation. But what it will do is it will kind of tell your whole system, there is something killing you. This is really dangerous. But if I say there's pressure, there's heat, there's tearing, there is stabbing, these qualities are just a description. They're not judging.
0: You're getting down to... The raw data of your physical sensations instead of the story. And the story makes the whole experience worse.
1: Usually. But for example, if you stop your toe in that moment, you know, this will not last. This hurts right now, but this will be gone in two minutes. And so in that moment, the mind is actually helpful because we have to remember. So all pain is real pain. So I just want to really put that out there because a lot of people, when they hear like they should learn meditation for their pain or they should see like a pain psychologist, what they often hear is that, oh, my doctor doesn't believe that I have real pain. So pain is always real pain. But the way that we know that pain functions is the body sends a signal to the brain saying like, pay attention there might be possible danger here because that is the function of the nociceptors. Nocice actually means like danger signals, right? So the body says like, hey, there might be danger here. And then the brain has to make an interpretation based on previous experiences and context in that moment to say this is dangerous or not. And what we also know is that in chronic pain because our nervous systems are actually not made for chronic pain. And so the nervous system becomes overprotective with recurring pain. And in a way, so then the nervous system learns, oh, here's the pain again. We know like this is how neuroplasticity works. Whatever we do repeatedly, we will get better at. And so basically your brain gets better and better at finding that pain and alarming the whole system. And that's a real danger because a lot of people with chronic pain will say, like, I know there isn't really any danger there anymore because the surgery is done. Everybody checked that out. And that is often so crazy making because what you know, what is actually going on in your system, and then the way that you feel about it doesn't, I mean, there is a discrepancy. And so a lot is really just like really educating people about this is how pain works. And this is why mindfulness can be really helpful because you're kind of, in a way, desensitizing your nervous
0: system. What if what's really causing us problems is the story, the anxiety, the story we're telling about how this is never going to end? Why is this always happening to me? I'm going to lose my job, et cetera, et cetera. What's the meditative approach to that?
1: So usually we're identified with our thinking, and that's the autopilot. And out of thinking comes emotions, and sometimes out of emotions comes thinking, and it's just running us. It's so a kind of mindfulness, is this moment of saying, like, wait, 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 what's going on here? Right? And then you notice, oh, I have all these anxious thoughts or these worried thoughts. And then So two things that you can do is, right, so we disengage and we kind of let the thoughts be more in the background, which is, of course, a lot easier said than done. (laughs) Can you meditate? I can attest to that, right? And this is why we do that in meditation. Like, can you notice your thinking? It has nothing to do with the thoughts that are happening in that moment, but can you recognize thinking is happening? And can you train that muscle to say, like, think you're not now? Can you let those thoughts be in the background? And then the more you do that, of course, the easier it becomes, because then, you know, like thinking can say all kinds of things and they're not necessarily true. Or how Tara Brock says they're real, but not
0: true. <laughs> I like that. Thoughts are real, but not true. So, you know, how would that work in the moment? Pain has come up, chronic or acute, whatever we're experiencing physical pain, we start telling ourselves a whole story, we catch it, and then what? What is the technically the meditative move?
1: Yes, so what you would do then is, so that's great. So you caught it, you notice, okay, there is like catastrophizing thinking happening or ruminative thinking happening. And then, of course, that doesn't make it stop, unfortunately, we wish, right? (laughs) But what we can do in that moment, we come back to one of our senses that is a good anchor for us. For example, that could be the breath. Could be your feet on the floor, right? It could be just like you orienting yourself in the room and say like, oh, I'm in this room right now. So the brain has a limited attention span. Part of how meditation works is that we, for once, decide how we want to fill that attention span. If we're not doing that, the mind will do that for us. And it will fill it with all kinds of crap, honestly. (laughs) So I (laughs) told, rehashing and rehearsing. It's like, thank you, not helpful right now. But who is saying what the mind is actually filled with? And so as a meditator or like using these practices, we can say, okay, I'll fill it with the awareness of my breath right now. And then I cannot at the same time pay full attention to my thoughts and feel my breath. I can do either or. Or do you both have, but not really. And that is also, of course, part of the
0: practice. So it's a little bit like I might like bite my arm a little bit when I'm getting a shot. I mean I'm yeah, gonna fill my yeah, mind kind of. with with <laughs> with one kind of pain that I'm comfortable with that I'm controlling on my own, so that the involuntary pain controlled by somebody else is less salient.
1: A little bit, yeah. You choose. But the thing is, so a lot of what's going on here, what is so scary that it feels like this is out of our control. And I think one of the great benefits of meditation is that we are taking back control by choosing how we relate to
0: it. Would you say that from a meditative perspective, and this might be tough for some people to hear, that pain is an opportunity?
1: Absolutely. And it comes back to this as, show me the person who's never had pain. Show me the person who will never have pain. So we have a human body. Pain is an essential function of our bodies to keep us safe. And then we have this thing happening that we call aging, which we have to learn to come to terms with. And we don't like to hear that. And we don't like to practice with that. But the more we can actually say like pain is a part of life, and not take it so personally, coming back to this, like, what do I identify with? Do I identify with this person that is in pain and how unfair that is and all the mistakes that have been made, which is part of how the brain tries to make sense of it. But we can really switch to saying, like, yeah, pain is a part of life. And, Since that will be part of my life's experience, I can choose how I want to work with that and how I relate to that. And I really don't want to say that lightly because I know like a lot of people really have excruciating physical pain. So this is not an easy, easy fix.
0: Just to put a fine point on it, when you say that meditation helps us relate to our pain differently, how does it help us relate to the pain?
1: We learn to not take it so personally. So if this is just like, oh, this is what a body feels like that experiences this particular pain to compare. This is Christiana who has this pain because I had this accident because that stupid driver didn't pay attention, right? So you can see how the whole nervous system starts to get activated again through the story. Yeah, this is pain and this is pain in this moment. This is what it feels like. And the other part is, which is really, really important for people who suffer from pain or chronic pain, is self-compassion. Can I just acknowledge that right now this is hard? This is a hard moment right now. And this is, again, the difference between self-compassion and self-pity, that self-pity is all about me and why this shouldn't be happening to me. And self-compassion is an opening up to like, yeah, this is part of the human experience. And I can connect in my mind or in my heart with all the other people who are experiencing exactly the same thing right now. And in a weird way, that is really helpful.
0: Coming up, Dr. Wolf talks about how to be self-compassionate in the presence of pain pain as an opportunity and how it can boost our capacity for concentration in meditation keep it here i had a very pleasant experience shopping on quince.com very easy to use website and they've got a terrific selection i bought myself a cashmere sweater and a sweatshirt That sweatshirt in particular is an extremely heavy rotation. If you watch the YouTube version of this podcast, you will see it. Or if you see me on social media occasionally, I'm wearing my Quince sweatshirt. And I have to say, uh, the prices are hard to beat for a luxury brand. What's more, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes indulge in affordable luxury go to quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns that's quince.com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash happier the show is sponsored by BetterHelp. what is the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day many of us spend our lives wishing we had more time therapy can help you figure out what matters to you so you can do more of it this is something i've spoken about at length for many years with with my therapist as somebody with a pronounced tendency toward overscheduling. Uh, working on figuring out what I care most about, what matters most to me, has been very useful when it comes to setting priorities. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com happier today to get 10% off your first month. Can you get more technical or granular about how we can bring self-compassion to our meditative game when pain is there, chronic or otherwise?
1: Yeah, again, like Kristin Neff's three-part model of self-compassion. As a researcher, she has broken down the experience of self-compassion into mindfulness, self-kindness, and shared humanity. So mindfulness, same thing. So what we just said, can you become aware that there is pain? Huge step, which is really hard to get to. That I will often like walk around for days before something says, Wait a second, oh, that remark did have an effect on me, for example, because I'm so trying to avoid pain. This is about emotional pain, but same with physical pain. So, awareness this is here. And then what we say is, can we just acknowledge this? And can we acknowledge that with the intention of kindness? Or we say the tone of voice. So what we would say is, and we often will place a hand on the heart or on the part that is painful and say like, this really hurts. This is a moment of struggle. Often what happens, we want to be acknowledged in that way. And a friend would do that in a way. A friend would say, you have a hard time right now. And then something in us goes, yes, thank (laughs) you for seeing me, right? And something softens. And we forget that we can actually do that for ourselves. Yeah, there's pain. Yes, this is true. Not avoiding just looking at it directly, but with kindness, And then, so that's the self-kindness, and then really opening into this is what it feels like for somebody in my situation to feel that pain. And then we can internally, energetically, however that works for you, connect with all the other people that have that same experience. They know what it feels like. And this is really the power of support groups, where somebody else looks at you and says, me too. I get what you're going through, right? And that does something to our nervous systems.
0: Also, in this kind of self talk kinder self-talk. I had, you know, when I first encountered this notion, I struggled with it a lot just because it seemed corny to me. Uh, A lot of people really like it, so I want to acknowledge that. But just for me, (laughs) it seems a little corny. But I've been able to, first of all, just get over myself and do it because there's scientific research that strongly suggests it works. Oh, yeah. And I'm, you know, just I'd like to suffer less, so I'll I'll take evidence-based practices. But part of getting over myself to do it is not only just seeing the research, but also adapting the language. You can make the language your own. So for me, it's more... Or like bro your oh. language, like, yeah, this sucks, dude. You <laughs> yeah. know, and, and yes, absolutely. that's what I would say to a guy, a guy friend who, yes. who, you know, broke Great. his leg.
1: Great. And it's really in the translation, right? If the words don't land, try different words. Or if language doesn't work, try a gesture. This is really why we really love to work with physical touch, right? Because there's so much research showing like, if somebody holds your hand, when you're going through a painful procedure that makes your pain level drop. So if you are really in pain and you get a hug from a friend, that makes your pain level drop. And so we're making this jump, and I know this is totally corny, and I work at the VA a lot, so they're like some tough guys, so we have to find some <laughs> different language instead of saying, like, oh, it's so soothing, and they go like, what? They just want to gag, right? <laughs> and So, but if somebody just, you're struggling, and somebody puts a hand on your shoulder and just looks at you, I got you, I see you, right? So how can we do that for ourselves It's really to see if you place a hand, your own hand, on the part of your body that hurts. Does that make a difference? Just so, like, I'm here. This hurts. It's so interesting then, but there are, I don't know if you know this, there are fibers in your skin that are just made for physical touch. Babies can't survive, if they are not touched in a particular way. And those, they're called C-fibers. And what happens is they need to be stroked in a particular pressure, in a particular frequency in order to fire. And of course, the context has to be right. So it has to be somebody you trust. If the person next to you on the metro does that, that won't work, right? But there's something that is built into our nervous systems about touch, So at the VA or with guys, we will say, can you hold your own hand? So if you're just sitting around and there's a chance that you actually have your hands in your lap and kind of holding one hand in the other, nobody will see that you are holding your own hand. It's kind of a stealth touch. I will often do that before I give a talk. When I'm a little bit nervous, I kind of squeeze my own hand and internally say, like, you got this. I got your back. And there is something that is really using another circuitry of support. So how can we communicate with our own nervous systems in a way that is helpful? And I think that's amazing that we can do that.
0: If you're meditating, pain, I believe you argue in your book, is an opportunity to boost your capacity for concentration, or to use the meditative term of art, samadhi. Have I... Put that correctly, and if so, can you sort of hold forth on it?
1: Yes. <laughs> there are few things that will get your attention the way pain does, because that is what it is hardwired to do. And so in a meditation setting, to have not too much, right? It's a like Goldilocks, like not too much, not too little. But to actually have a form of pain in the body, right? You can choose to either move and make the pain go away. Or you can, if you're on a retreat, you can choose to actually use that as the object of your attention. Sometimes meditators will report that then pain stops to be painful, but it is just an intense experience. And that, then it gets really interesting because as a society, we have learned so deeply to fear all kinds of pain. And so when this fear stops and we can just really be with it, then it becomes just a pulsing vibration and something that is just like an amplitude changing all the time. And if you can stay with that, that can actually bring you quite deep into concentration. And so Shinzen Yang is a meditation teacher. He has a whole book on that because he took up pain practices when he was practicing in Japan really as his core method of going deeper into concentration. And so he has the saying, there is no pain. Pain is a construct. For the average meditator, that is maybe a little bit too far out. And it might be good to know that that is out there too.
0: In terms of meditating with pain, have you heard Joseph Goldstein's expression, in order to mind? Yes, Do you want to explain what that means, what he means by in order to mind?
1: I would love to hear like your understanding, actually.
0: In order to mind is to make whatever's ailing me, whatever's bothering me, whatever's unpleasant in my experience, to turn that into the object of my meditation. In other words, to focus my mind on that.
1: In order to?
0: Well, his point is that you may notice that you're doing that in order to make it go away, that you have an agenda. Yes. And of course, that desire or agenda is a classic hindrance in meditation. And so I think his advice is just to notice the in order to. So you're noticing the pain, but then you might notice, oh, yeah, am I doing this with the subtle or not so subtle agenda of making this itch subside? Notice that, too.
1: And that is actually a very powerful practice. Because as long as you're still doing that, however subtly to manipulate your experience, it's hard to truly let go. And this is one of the pitfalls also when we're practicing self-compassion. One thing that we will say is we're not practicing self-compassion to make the pain go away, but we practice compassion because there's pain. And that makes a huge difference. And at the same time, we're human. Of course we want the pain to go away. So we're not trying to become like superhuman, but can we become aware? And then what happens actually often is, okay, so there's the pain, there's the resistance to the pain, and awareness can hold it both. Because usually we come with this agenda without really being aware of it, and then it drives our meditation And as soon as we can say, like, oh, look at the resistance, there's the pain, there's the resistance, and can I allow both to be there? Then there's more freedom in the resistance to actually get bigger, to get less, to dissolve.
0: I'll give you another Joseph ism. He also says, awareness doesn't care. And that you can use that as a little mantra in your mind that, okay, yeah, you've got an intense pain somewhere, emotional, physical. And you can just remind yourself, oh yeah, awareness doesn't care. The knowing faculty of the mind our raw awareness doesn't actually care, which is I think what Shinzen Young is getting at when he says pain isn't real.
1: I phrase it into like awareness doesn't care what it is aware of. And that is just, oh, this is not the special thing that we do over here. And then there are other areas of our lives where we can't apply awareness. No, awareness is really just a function like a flashlight. So it's dark. You don't see anything. You use a flashlight to shine light under your bed. And then, whoops, like, wow, there are all these dust bunnies under there, right? Which you actually, you didn't want to see. But now that you've shown your light onto them, like here they are. The light just does the function of lighting up. But then, of course, what is really important to also remember that we want to use mindfulness not just in the concept of paying attention. That is the whole fear of the people who said in the secular mindfulness movement, we are turning that into mindfulness, when we're just taking a very small sliver of what mindfulness was actually intended to do. Yes, it trains attention, no question about that. But it's not only about attention, but it's also about the other qualities. So sati, the Pali word for mindfulness, also having the word memory in it. We want to remember why we're doing this. So we do this with a particular intention to reduce suffering. Or to have more insight, to see how things really are, the definition of insight meditation. And then what we also want to see is, what is my intention? Why am I doing this? Why am I paying attention to this? To see how the mind works and to really see how the mind is without bad intention, but creating more suffering just through the way the untrained mind is structured, And this is why often we say that sati in itself actually is a wholesome quality. So if we're shining this, not just a flashlight, but the flashlight with a particular intention, then just bringing that to a moment of pain can be a wholesome or healing experience. I teach a lot of MBSR classes, so mindfulness-based stress reduction classes. And of course, people come because they're suffering. They're not interested in Buddhism. They just want their back pain to go away, or they don't want to have these anger outbursts, right? Or they want to get better along with their colleagues or their kids or whatever. So they come and we have this practice that we say, can you just be present for what is here? And as I said earlier, notice the in order to mind and include that too. And often people say like, oh, I thought because we come with such an agenda I need this to change, so I need to become aware. And once I'm aware, this is what I need to do to change it. We're saying like, no, 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 no. Can you just hold it? Hold it with this wholesome quality of awareness or loving awareness, and then notice that things will start to self-integrate and start to heal just through this different environment, if you want it.
0: So... What did the studies say about whether meditation can actually help us with pain management?
1: So we need more studies, let's put it this way, and we need more specific studies. And I think there will be more specific studies coming out. I'm actually working right now with UC San Francisco on developing a mindfulness-based stress reduction variation for chronic pain. So we are developing a study for that for people with lower back pain, lower chronic back pain, because it's often hard to say what is really helpful. And we know that some therapy forms are really helpful, and we know that some studies show that mindfulness is helpful for chronic pain. In other studies, it doesn't really show an effect. And I think we're casting the net too wide because, first of all, there's so many different forms of chronic pain. And so if we can be more specific, that is helpful. But one study that I always loved, so John Kabat-Zinn, actually one of the first studies that he did with MBSR was for people with chronic pain. And that was one of his core intentions when he first started MBSR in 1979 to offer something to people who really had gone through the entire Western healthcare system with no really good results other than just medication or surgery. And what was really interesting is so they looked at, so what are the pain levels starting MBSR and what are the pain levels ending MBSR? And what showed was that for quite a number of people, the kind of objective pain level didn't change, but their quality of life scores went up quite a bit. And that touches me to just talk about that because for me, that is such an important way to express how the teachings work, honestly, then. So what it means is there's still pain, but what does that mean if your quality of life goes up? You're happier, you're more engaged, you feel more connected, you feel more like life has something to offer to you. You learn how to live with the pain that is not going away. And people will ask me, so if I learn to meditate, will my pain go away? And I say, honestly, I have no idea. I have seen people with pain, headaches, or strange pain, like unexplainable pain, completely go away through meditation or through these practices. And other people, no, didn't change. But what I truly believe is that people who really make themselves available to these practices of mindfulness and compassion, that they will get happier. Maybe 10%, right? Maybe more, but there is something that will change. And I find that so hopeful because we can get away from this fixation of, if only the pain wasn't here, then I would be happy.
0: I just finished Crime of the Century. It's on HBO Max, directed by a guy I know and respect, Alex Gibney. It's a two-part documentary series. It's really excellent on the opioid crisis. And one of the points they make in that documentary is that one of the contributing factors to the opioid crisis may have been or may be our inability to tolerate pain or the the culture just deems pain to be unacceptable.
1: Yes, I agree. And then we want a quick fix, right? I remember when I was trained as a physician, I was trained that if you take opioids after surgery, you can't get addicted. Seriously, I learned that as a physician,
0: Tens of thousands of overdose deaths in America alone uh, over the past few years. Coming up, Christiana talks about why difficult emotions are not a problem. The problem is how we relate to those emotions. And we talk about resentment and how our meditation practice can move us toward its opposite, forgiveness. That's coming up. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. This is perhaps a bit idiosyncratic, but one of the experiences that my son, Alexander, loves is mini-golf. We recently went to a mini-golf-themed restaurant in uh, in Denver where we were traveling. And uh, when we go to Montauk, which is our favorite beach town here on the East Coast, we play mini-golf at Putt-Putt all the time. Alexander, his buddies, me... And in one way or another, these experiences are really what become the the most memorable and important part about taking trips, which brings me to Viator, which is a website and app where you can book travel experiences, everything from simple tours to extreme adventures, with over 300,000 bookable experiences in 190 countries. There's something for everyone. I have used Viator myself. I find it to be incredibly helpful. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator.
1: Dell Tech Fest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time only, save on select next-gen PCs, like the XPS 13 Plus, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. Again, that's dell.com deals.
0: So I'm interested, you wrote this book about pain and then you dedicate huge swaths of the book to emotional pain. Why? Why not just stay with the physical pain?
1: Because our system is always trying to make sense of what is happening to us. And it tries, right? So you have to remember that our nervous systems are made to keep us alive. And pain is like one of the core signals that our well-being could be in danger. And so our nervous system pays a lot of attention and a lot of energy around avoiding pain. And then we have also emotions. So emotions also developed throughout evolution and they all have a role. So for example, anger, anger's role is to defend ourselves and to kind of alert us to the fact that boundaries have been crossed. That's a very healthy function. But I think we have also learned to fear emotions. So the philosophy of Stoicism, that's been very influential as a way, like say, like emotions are dangerous and we can never let ourselves guide by emotions. And then the whole idea that we value cognition so much over emotions, and we say like, don't be so emotional, right? That is not a compliment. Or we say, oh, that person like, can be trusted because they are run by their emotions. So emotions have a really bad rap. And what we're trying really to do with this practice is to say, like, emotions are not a problem. What we're doing with this and how we're relating to emotions, that's the problem. We say, and I'm sure Joseph has said that too, <laughs> that you're not responsible for the emotions that are coming up. You're responsible for what you do with them just like you're not responsible for the thoughts that are coming up, but you're responsible for what you do with them. And we're shifting away from this idea is there's something wrong with me or I'm a bad person because I'm feeling this way or I'm thinking that way. Let's not go there. It's here. What's the wisest and most loving and most skillful way to deal with this?
0: So let's talk tactics now in terms of how we can use meditation on big emotions. You have a chapter title called Anger as a Mixed Bag. Can you (laughs) tell us what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, anger is a mixed bag, because when you grew up, Dan, was it okay for you to be angry as a child?
0: Well, I think this has something to do with how we treat boys differently than we treat girls. I wasn't socialized in a way that made anger taboo, but I think a lot of girls are.
1: That is true. That's what I hear a lot. But I also I've actually heard that from a lot of men that they also said actually any display of emotions wasn't OK in their families.
0: Oh, no, like, my parents were recovering hippies and uh, no. <laughs> everything was, you know, we were encouraged to let it all Oh, OK. Yeah. Thanks
1: for sharing that. That makes put some things into making sense. Thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it hasn't always worked out to my benefit. I expressed my anger with too much profligacy throughout too much of my life in ways that hurt me and the people around me.
1: So anger itself is not a problem, right? Anger is just something that is arising, and, and or let's put it two ways. So if we let anger run... If we talk about neuroplasticity, if we are angry a lot, we get really good at being angry. Behavior that we do repeatedly is easier to do the next time and even easier to do the next time. So that is why it is so really important to look at what are we doing with what is arising in the present moment. And so anger can really be a great way, and especially for people who have a hard time feeling angry or who got the message for whatever cultural, right? They're like culture where it's just like, no, you can never be angry. Or the stereotype, for example, like of the angry Black woman. How are you being angry when you just have all the right to be angry and you happen to be Black and you happen to be a woman? We're moving into whole other territories here. What does that mean for you to own your anger? And so that can be a very big first step for people or for women. Really big step to say, I am angry about this or there's a lot of anger about this here. Because what that can bring us to is to say, like, I need to say something. I need to stop this. This can't go on like this. So I can use anger as an information, and anger is, brings a lot of energy. Anger makes us, and if not used wisely, to be very damaging or harmful. But if we use that impulse that says, stop enough, this needs to change. So there's the anger as information. And so how are we using that or working with that so that it is not overwhelming and we don't use that as a weapon that hurts other people and ultimately hurts ourselves, right? So there's the Buddhist saying, anger is like you're picking up a hot coal to throw at another person. So if you're acting out, it will always hurt you too. Because of course, as practitioners, we practice the five precepts. And the first precept is do no harm. And yet, like, we're causing harm all the time. That's why it is a mixed bag. And the way that we practice with that is, again, like, the steps are pretty much always the same. Can you be aware that there is anger in your system? How do you know you're angry?
0: Most of my emotions show up in my chest. Okay. So tightness.
1: Tightness, uh uh-huh. Yeah. What
0: else? Tightness in the chest and maybe restlessness in the body. Okay. Like I need to discharge some sort of unacceptable energy.
1: Okay. And right there, we see we're, we're circling back to this idea that something that is uncomfortable is not acceptable. So the body says, we need to get rid of this. This is uncomfortable. And then we would usually, so if this is not checked, we would go out and do that. We raise our voice. We might lash out at somebody. And then for a moment, we feel like, oh, I've discharged that energy. But I've also just harmed that relationship. And with that, I've also harmed myself. Really, the principles are always the same. Can I be aware of it? Can I hold it without doing anything with it? And the meditation that we use for being with anger is really creating space, which we have mentioned earlier. Or an image, because anger is so energetic. Like if you have a wild horse that's just bucking like crazy, you need to give it a wide corral. So basically what you do, you hold it safe, you make sure it's not running around and running through the stables causing mayhem, but you give it a wide space, you hang out until it will calm down, which it will, because that's the nature of energy.
0: So in meditation, that would work how?
1: Literally, so you notice you locate anger in your system. Really important, don't go into the anger story because the way that the thoughts are working is they will re-trigger the emotion, right? You know that like something happened, you're like really upset about it, you forget about it, and then something triggers that thought and immediately you have the emotion again. And then you go into thinking again and that triggers the emotion again. So we want to really stay away from the story because the story doesn't matter in that moment. If there's something you need to deal with, it you can do that later, but right now. So where is it in the body? Truth be told, a lot of people can't even feel anger in the body because they're so disconnected from the body. But if I could locate anger in my body, where would that be? Okay, you sit in your chest and you just feel like that restless energy that needs to discharge. That is what you focus on in your meditation. The way that you can focus on a very small piece, you can focus feeling the breath at the tip of your nostrils or at your belly, or you can feel the body breathing. You can feel the breath and the whole body at the same time. So we have the capacity to zoom in or zoom out. So you locate where is it in the body, and then you open up to feel the whole body. And then do you feel anger in your whole body? No, it's just in the chest. Okay, That means there are other areas in your body that are not feeling that kind of sensation right now. I don't want to, like, infantilize anger because anger can be really dangerous. But sometimes in my meditation, it feels like I need to control a tantruming toddler. So I have three teenagers, so I've had a lot of tantruming toddlers at some point, and now I have tantruming teenagers. (laughs) Is I hold space for them? Make sure they're not harming anybody or themselves as best as I can. And then as we know, right, tantrums will pass. And just experiencing that we can do that and we don't need to do anything with it can be very powerful.
0: Let me ask before we go about another emotion that you write about, which is resentment. And you talk about how we can use our meditation practice to vector toward forgiveness. Can you say a few words about that?
1: Yes. So forgiveness is a really hard one. And forgiveness doesn't happen overnight. Forgiveness is not something that we decide to say, yeah, that makes sense to forgive that person or that situation or myself. But the thing is that anger will turn into bitterness if we over time can't let go of it. And that's just like a yucky feeling, honestly. And forgiveness practice can help. I mean, Jack Cornfield, he has taught a lot, and I'm actually using his meditation as a foundation because I find that is the most helpful step-by-step way. And he talks about his forgiving his father, his abusive father, over years of doing a practice daily, just a little bit. And starting out really with coming back to what we mentioned earlier, the intention, because we have agency over our intention. We can't decide to forgive or we can't decide to be compassionate or we can't decide to love. But what we do is we can set the intention and then we can keep inviting these qualities in over and over and over and trust basic neuroscience that whatever we do repeatedly, that will change us.
0: So what are the steps for forgiveness meditation?
1: Just starting out by, is there a situation that you want to kind of work on? And then depending on, is it something that you have done? Is that something that somebody has done to you? Or is it something that you have done to yourself? So what is it actually that you want to forgive? And then using compassion practice to say, I'm not that person anymore. Maybe I made a mistake there. I moved on. And then just like with the loving kindness or the metta practice, we can use particular phrases. It's basically out of my own ignorance, out of my own fear, out of my own being stuck, I made this mistake. And then just really repeating that and feeling into the pain of not being free here. If it's in a relationship with another person that we're still holding kind of the other person.
0: I've learned a lot, and I suspect a lot of people will have learned a lot too. But is there something that we really should have covered here that I failed to bring us to?
1: No, I think we've touched a lot of things. And what I really want people is to not feel that because they have pain, that they cannot have joy and meaningful life at the same time. Because we can really fall into this idea, because I have this, I cannot be or feel a particular way. And that is something really, I think, the most important message is, of course, I wish for your pain to go away. Of course, you keep searching for solutions. But even if the pain doesn't go away, it doesn't mean you can't have a really, a really beautiful and meaningful life.
0: Before we go, can you just remind everybody of the name of the book and any other resources you have on the Internet or elsewhere that people might want to? avail themselves of?
1: So the book is called Outsmart Your Pain. And I have resources on my website and also classes where I teach about pain and a lot of guided meditations and retreats that I'm teaching. And my website is just my name. So ChristianaWolf.com.
0: Christiana, thanks very much for coming on.
1: Thank you so much for having me. That was a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks again to Dr. Christiana Wolf. Thank you as well to everybody who works so hard on the show. 10% Happier is produced by Justine Davy, DJ Kashmir, Gabrielle Zuckerman, and Lauren Smith. Our senior producer is Marissa Schneiderman. Kimmy Regler is our managing producer. And our executive producer is Jen Poyant. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus meditation. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, Uh, You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. If you travel for work, you know to pack two suits, business and swim. You know with your Delta Sky Miles business Amex card, buying that plane ticket for a business trip... Can get you closer to medallion status. You know that a meeting in Montana means visiting almost every national park. Yellowstone? Check. Because you're the chief excursion officer. It's why you're a Delta Sky Miles Platinum Business American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply visit go.amic you know business. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate stable city on Earth. A haven.